Well, if you would, would you turn to 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3? We've been moving along at a steady clip, and we're going to slow down uh, here in these last two chapters. So if you would, would you stand? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your Spirit is the one who's given to us that we might understand spiritual things, that we might understand and grasp the things that have been given to us in Christ, things that are wondrous, things beyond our comprehension. And so we ask that we might understand uh, the meaning of these words and see uh, how they connect with our lives today. Lord, equip us, encourage us, instruct us, we pray. Amen. Amen. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Please take your seats. Well, two friends were enjoying a dinner together, and their friendship was a long one. It was full of deep conversation and fun. There was no topic uh, off limits. They had a deep mutual respect for each other, and so there was an unguarded quality to their interactions. And very often, the one who wasn't a Christian would ask the Christian about something related uh, to Christianity. And once he asked this, you Christians are always talking about using the Bible as a guide uh, for everything, and including how you live your lives. Seriously, what's your fascination with that old book? Well, his friend replied, everyone has a, a standard that governs uh, their lives, some authority when they're making important uh, decisions. Not me. <laughs> and... Uh, the believer with genuine curiosity said, well, just how is it that you make decisions about how you spend your time or uh, what's uh, good, uh, what's bad, um, truth from lies? I go with my gut, with my instincts. I certainly don't need that dusty old book. Well, his friend replied, it's not that I govern my life by a standard and you don't. Apparently the difference is, is that you yourself are serving as your standard and the Bible is mine. And reluctantly, but eventually, his friend agreed uh, with him. Now, everyone has a standard that they use to navigate uh, life how you spend your time, your money, who 
you decide to make friends with, what job uh, to take, uh, and what's uh, right and wrong. And there are really only two options before you. You can either choose yourself as a standard, a standard that you've chosen, or you can embrace a standard from outside of yourself. You either have a standard that comes from within, ultimately, or you have one from outside of yourself. For much of human history, uh, individuals um, received that standard from your family or your tribe or your church. And, um, and uh, it was provided. And you didn't go and search for a standard. Um, it was something that no one questioned. It was given to you. But today, in the modern uh, West, uh, each individual has to create their own identity, decide if there's a group they're going to identify with, and determine for themselves what standard they're going to live by. And the suggestion that they should receive a standard from outside of themselves seems strange at best, and, well, likely to be actually oppressive, meaning that that would entail a loss of freedom. Now, freedom understood this way means there's no constraints. If I'm going to be really free, there's nothing that can limit my actions, except for one thing, I'm not to harm another person. That's what it amounts to. And actually, you hear this all uh, the time. Uh, whatever two consenting adults choose uh, to do is okay. Of course, it, that makes it uh, moral. Consent makes it right. Or it's my body and no one can tell me what to do with it. Um, or if there's no victim, there's no crime. And the problem with this is there's actually no way to decide what's harmful. What are those things that are really uh, off uh, limits. In the Harvard School of Business, in a class in ethics, the, the professor raised this question, asked the class, what uh, is immoral? And the class had a discussion that went on 45, 50 minutes, and various ideas were kicked out, but they were ultimately dismissed. None of them uh, could uh, grab the agreement of everybody in the class except for one thing the torture of infants. Everybody could agree that that was immoral. The deeper problem, though, of this way of looking at freedom, that freedom uh, to be free must mean there's actually no limitations, is that, well, if nothing is off limits, uh, then you actually can't enjoy some of the highest things in life. Let me give you a couple of examples. Now, my son-in-law, uh, Jake, teaches piano at the University of Kentucky, and he's played for audiences all over the world at venues whose names you would readily uh, recognize. And as you might imagine, he started playing piano at a very young age. And by the time he reached high school, he was playing more than six hours a day, which uh, meant that he had to give up a lot of things. See, if you want to play an instrument well enough to hold the attention of a group of people, and you want the pleasure of actually moving uh, people emotionally, 
by what you play, well, you're just going to have to accept a loss of freedom to practice. And Jake, who's uh, 6'2", uh, didn't get to play basketball in high school because he was sitting at the piano as soon as school was uh, over. You see, you just have to give up a lot of freedom if you want to master an instrument. And it's not really possible to enjoy a deep relationship, whether it's with a friend or in the context of a marriage, without, well, choosing to do what the other person wants to do, even if you don't want to do it. You just have to do what other people want. You have to accept that constraint uh, to your choices. And it's actually not possible to have a society uh, that uh, flourishes, that thrives without limitations that are both imposed and embraced. Just imagine what it would be like to use the interstate system if half of the drivers drove like the ones that are the most aggressive out there. If they did, it would just be completely unsafe to get on those highways. And even if you had to use one, well, you'd, be, you'd not enjoy uh, the drive at, at all. In our text, what Paul does is he urges Timothy here to continue uh, to be faithful to what he's learned and believed. And he points to two different sources. One of the sources is Paul's example, and in a second-handed way, he refers to his grandmother and uh, mother. And the other is his knowledge of Scripture. And we're going to look at the second one uh, first this morning this morning and we'll take up the other one next week because the scripture's foundational both to Timothy's childhood and Paul's uh, life and he himself has immersed himself in them. Now together these were Timothy's two sources of beliefs and standards. Well you might ask why would I embrace the Bible as a standard? Are they really a reliable guide for life? And, well, are they even relevant to life in the 21st century? And Paul tells us here three reasons why the scriptures are a dependable guide for life. Why it is that they're unique, why they are special, and why they can function in this way. He says that the scriptures can make you wise for salvation in verse 15. The scriptures answer the question of what's wrong with the world, and how the world can be made whole. Now last week uh, we were reading the passage just before this, and Paul says that we live in terrible times, and then he describes the behavior of the people in those times, lovers of self, lovers of money, uh, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, uh, without self-control, brutal, treacherous, reckless. Well, if you're on the receiving end of someone's behavior that's treating you this way, there is something instinctive within you that says, foul, there's something wrong uh, with this. And the Bible tells us this wasn't always so, that God created a beautiful and harmonious world and placed in it 
people uh, who were good, who had no inclination to evil. And he, the Bible tells us we were made for a wonderful relationship with God, a relationship that would define our identities uh, as we relate to him, uh, that would give you a sense of purpose, satisfaction, and joy. And it explains that a tragic event took place that changed all of this. And so, as a result, all people have lost their connection with God, and they can't uh, get it back. Because we've both offended this God, and uh, we hide and even run from him. We are naturally hostile to God, and this hostility takes a number of forms. Some people, well, they are just openly defiant. Uh, they, are, they express animosity toward God. They're very reactive uh, toward his name or anything that represents him. And then there are other people who just have a passive resistance uh, or just ignore him. All of those are expressions of this animosity. And as a result, there's just this unbridgeable gulf uh, between God and all people. And... Um, this uh, gulf has led to everything else being uh, disordered uh, in the world. Every aspect of existence has been uh, changed. And while there's still uh, beauty and goodness, it's all marred. It's all defective. Things are simply not the way they're supposed to be. And though we're told that death is natural, it's just a part of the cycle of life, and so uh, we should embrace it, there's something in us, and in most people, when death gets close, that resonates with uh, Dylan Thomas's poem, Don't Go Gently Into That Good Night. One of the lines that I, I love in the poem is this, Old age uh, should burn and rage at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I just love that because it just expresses uh, my hostility uh, toward uh, death. It just cries out there's something wrong that we die. And the Bible alone gives us a coherent account of this and tells us that God has acted in Jesus uh, to reconcile us, uh, that God uh, became human. He lived the life we should have lived. He took God's wrath that's due to us for our ingratitude and our rebellion. And in Jesus, he's done everything God uh, could ever require of us. And the Bible tells us that we can be rescued and restored uh, by uh, embracing Jesus Christ in faith, uh, uh, believing that he died for us and following him. And uh, this is the great story of the Bible. It's told in all 66 books in one way or another as they point us uh, to Jesus. The second reason that the Bible is unique and is a reliable guide for us is in verse 16. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is unlike any other book because it's breathed out. It's not inspired, as some translations put it. It's not an inspired book. Um, it's, see, when we say inspired, what we usually mean is, well, that an uh, artist or a musician had a, a moment of creativity came upon them and they produced this wonderful work. Or we might say, when we interact with such a work, that it's inspiring uh, to me. 
But the Bible is not a product of uh, people's writing something creatively about God, that they had some moment of flash of insight and they wrote this down. Now, Paul actually coins a new uh, word, a word that didn't exist uh, before he wrote this letter to talk about the Bible. In the original, it's theopneustos, which means God breathed, literally, as the translation we've read today says. In other words, God exhales, he breathes out the words of scripture uh, to reveal himself in his ways. Now, of course, the Bible uh, came to us through various people, and we know the names of some, although not, not all of them by any means. We know Moses and Jeremiah and Luke, among others, and they were not dictated to. God didn't say, write this down, and now read it back to me so I can be sure you got it. Uh, he didn't move their hands while their minds were empty uh, to write these words. No, he utilized their personalities, their intellect, their language skills. Some of them don't speak uh, very good Hebrew or Greek as they uh, write. Um, even their life experiences, as he breathed out uh, his thoughts through them, they wrote their thoughts and God's thoughts. And these were one and the same as the Bible was written. They might object, this sounds really very circular. Hey, pastor, you're saying that the Bible's a reliable guide because it claims for itself that it is the words of God. Are you brainwashed? Can't you think? Well, it's a fair question. It really deserves an honest answer. And the best answer is this, that the Bible is self-authenticating. In the same way that uh, bananas and kiwi are self-authenticating. So if, if you closed your eyes and I offered you a piece of kiwi and you put it in your mouth, you would instantly know it's not a banana, right? Because bananas oh, taste a certain way. You experience a banana in a, a certain way and it's very different than a, a kiwi. Well, the Bible's uniqueness is seen in that it knows you. It pierces, it exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It knows you in a way that only God could know you. And I know this by experience as I read it regularly. It exposes my secret thoughts, my motivations, and my deepest desires. And you don't have to take my word for it. All you have to do is accept this challenge. Go read the Bible. Go open it up. John's Gospel. Read it every day uh, for a month. And you will have this experience too. You see, the Bible's power to speak to people is so great that throughout human history, those who've wanted to be able to control the people under them have sought to destroy this book and keep it out of people's hands. The third quality of the Bible that follows from the fact that God has given every sentence of it, that every sentence of it is true, it's utterly reliable, and it's dependable, um, it's contains within it truth that you could never discover on your own. And 
And this is why Paul adds these words. This is the third reason. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be uh, competent, equipped for every good work. In other words, if you want a sentence right, as some of you are sitting there writing, the scriptures are a training manual for living. Um, and they teach us how to think, how to develop the skills and knowledge and insights we need to live well. It reveals what's worthwhile and what isn't, what God loves and God hates, what leads to human flourishing and what leads to personal and societal decay. It informs, it enlarges, and it bends us. It has the power to change us because we encounter not just words, but God himself. And these encounters expose our biases, our blind spots, and our stubborn uh, pride. It shows us where we need a God-centered adjustment in our attitudes, in our thinking, in our emotions, and our living. So it's a reliable guide to all of that. The Bible has this uh, uh, sentence in one of the Psalms. It says uh, that the lamp of God is a, a uh, is a, the word of God is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And uh, J.I. Packer asked us to kind of do a thought experiment about this. Just imagine you are out in open country. It is a moonless, dark, cloudy night. There is no natural light. And further, uh, that the trail you're walking down is uneven. It's a rough uh, path. You know there's a trail uh, there, um, but you're really at risk of stumbling and falling and injuring uh, yourself. And the likelihood of reaching the end of that trail, well, is quite uh, low. And it doesn't matter how much you squint your eyes. There's simply no natural light. What you need is a light. Now, uh, in the time of the Bible, these were little uh, oil lamps. Um, but what you need is a flashlight, of course. You know, one of those nice headlamps uh, that if you hike, uh, you want to have. And um, God in his mercies put one in your hand. And uh, it will uh, provide light for you as you walk through life if you will put it in your hands and turn it on. And you can walk uh, without stumbling and without injury. But this leads to the second question. Uh, are the scriptures a reliable guide for life for us in the 21st century? After all, they were written a long time ago. The last ones were written almost two millennia ago. And we live in a very different time and a different place. And we can easily think that the people in the Bible didn't experience the pressures that we experience in the modern world. They don't have the technology or the insights of science that we do. And add to this, there's something else besides that just feeling there's this great gulf between us, is that both God and his word have been pushed to the fringe of life uh, f f as far as our society is concerned. It's all fine and well that you Christians use the Bible as a guide for your personal lives. But it has nothing relevant to say to the rest of life. Now this development is called secularization. And 
Both God and the scriptures have been publicly declared uh, and socially and culturally dead. They're irrelevant. They mean nothing for us in those uh, spheres. C.S. Lewis uh, said this in The Abolition of Man uh, as he described one of the consequences of this. We end up living in a society uh, that lacks the capacity to make moral judgments. Uh, We simply can't agree on what ultimately is true or false. Everything is just a matter of private opinion. And that is where we live today. People will tell you, that's truth for you, but it's not truth for me. That's good for you. It's not uh, good for me. You claim it's good for everybody. You're just, you're just trying uh, to impose something on me. And friends, the deep and real truth is, is that this way of thinking has deeply affected us has deeply affected uh, followers of Christ. And we've been led to think that the Bible doesn't have much to say about the world around us. And uh, some of you will recognize the name Michael Horton. Uh, He thinks that this secularization began in the church. And the church, it's spread out from the church uh, to American society. And... So, as a result, many Christians conclude the Bible really has nothing to say about contemporary life. Luke Timothy Johnson uh, was a professor of New Testament at Emory University, and he said this. uh, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commandments of Scripture and appeal to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our experience. Now that might strike some of you as extreme, but it's actually how many professing Christians live. When we come to think about marriage, parenting, sexual orientation, finances, politics, education, career, even worship, plenty of Christians do not turn to the Bible and ask, what does it teach? They rather uh, turn, well, perhaps to a talking head, or a uh, trending podcast, or um, maybe a celebrity that they like, personal experience and popular opinion become their North Star. And as a result, we absorb the outlook and values of the culture around us. And we don't ask, it's not our first instinct to ask, what does the Bible say about this? And so while we can formally say that the great motto of the Reformation, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. In practice, uh, we leave the Bible out in the cold and on the shelf. So really the question is, my, my sermon pages are just curled at the bottom here. I'm just fighting this morning. Uh, do you believe that the Bible actually is a guide that will equip you for every good work? Now, let me be sure I don't lose you here, because it's real easy to think that when Paul writes this, that this is just uh, Paul and uh, speaking to Timothy, whose life work revolved around the Christian ministry. And of course, Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, a church planter, a theologian, a pastor, and a man of letters. And he's passing the torch on uh, to Timothy, who will be a pastor and teacher. And almost none of you, I dare say, although I don't know, maybe some of you, you will be called to do this, uh, uh, are, are called uh, to 
Christian ministry as your primary uh, work calling. Equipped for every good work, every good endeavor includes work and home and athletic competition and sex and money and politics and art and science. We are commanded to take every thought captive uh, to Christ in the second letter to the Corinthians. We're commanded to think about everything biblically, to analyze what's going on around us, uh, uh, to understand how the world thinks about this, and to offer a distinctly Christian perspective. The Bible is God's truth about all of reality and gives us a comprehensive framework on all of life. And if you're a Christ follower, uh, you really have to face this. You just can't dismiss what Paul's saying about the scripture because Jesus himself had this incredibly high view of the scriptures. In Matthew 5, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And elsewhere, Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken. We live in an impatient age. I'm sure you would agree with that, and a narcissistic one. We are uh, fixated and preoccupied with our needs, our wants, and our hopes at the expense of other people and certainly at God's expense. And so I want to just press this in with principally one application this morning. Because, see, it often works out that we are impatient uh, with the preaching of the Bible. This would be equally true in reading the Bible. It's all good and well, we'd say, for the preacher to base his sermon on the Bible. But he'd better get to something personally relevant quickly, or I'm going to check out. And as you call a new pastor... Oh, don't fall into that attitude, you know. That it's good to start with a Bible pastor, but, you know, get to something that's immediately applicable to my life. You see, real listening in a relationship is different than when two people are having an argument. All of you probably had an argument. And what people tend to do in an argument is they tend to listen to the other person only long enough to get some ammunition to respond back. And so don't listen to sermons like that. Uh, don't expect something original from your next pastor. Don't come in expecting uh, something uh, funny, uh, something that's going to break up your boredom as if the onus is on him to keep you engaged in, in hearing uh, the word and hearing it explained. You see, we have a miracle book in front of us. The creator of heaven and earth is speaking to us. And he's the only one who can speak to our deepest questions. He's the only one who can restore us in our broken humanity. The only one who can give us a comprehensive guide for life. And when the Bible is preached or read, there ought to be a hush that comes over us. 
We should be inching toward the edge of our seats, leaning uh, forward, trying to turn the best uh, ear toward the speaker, fearful that we'll miss a single word. Uh, The deeds and the character of God Almighty are revealed there. Uh, Deeds and character about the suffering world and pain uh, we live in, about doubt and despair, about uh, the questions we have about the meaning and purpose of our lives. And we hear about God's glory, his forgiveness, his mercy, his love, his intention for the world, and his promise to make all things whole and right uh, once again. And if we take the trouble to listen, listen to that word, we'll discover something else. That the one being revealed is is impatient with us as we are impatient with him and his word. He's enamored with us as we are bored with him. He's even more enamored with us than we can imagine. Well, as I've preached the word uh, in numerous churches uh, over the years, it's not that unusual for somebody to come out of the worship service and say to me, Pastor, that was a good sermon. I wish my friend had come with me. She really needed to hear what you said. And I've often wanted to say, but I don't think I ever have, yes, but did you need to hear it? Contrast that uh, with a different experience. So a sermon is preached, and it changes a person's life. And they come back, and they, and they tell the pastor uh, one Sunday. It's been years since that sermon was preached. They say, that sermon, in fact, a single sentence in that sermon changed up my life. I was living in such a way that was completely out of tune what I heard. And, you know, I wasn't even sure I was a, a Christian. And you spoke uh, this sentence. And the pastor was just dumbfounded. He said, you know, yeah, I'm really glad <laughs> that your life has, has changed. But I didn't say that. I, I wouldn't have said anything like that from the pulpit. That, that was too unguarded a, a statement. It would have been, well, it just it wasn't appropriate for, for uh, public preaching. And it was easily uh, misunderstood. I, I'm happy, really, I'm happy for you, but you're thinking of somebody else. And the man looked the pastor in the eye, and he, and he said, well, he started quoting the sermon line by line. And he said, you said this, and then you said that, and then you said this, and then this sentence uh, came. And as the man was relating his experience, the pastor remembered what had happened at that point. Just the whole, that week came back into his mind, and the, and the difficult things that had unfolded that week and how in a, a moment uh, he had added this, just this aside, this, these unplanned words in his uh, sermon. And God, by his grace, took that human speech and applied it to that man's heart. I haven't had that experience, but I've had many people tell me they heard me say something that I know I didn't say in a sermon. It was something they really uh, needed uh, to hear. And, you know, this just shows us the power of this word. 
God is able by his spirit to apply it to our uh, lives. And if sermons occasionally uh, surpass normal speech, scripture always does because God has breathed it out and it is profitable for faith and for righteousness. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Father, thank you that we live in a time and a place where we have Bibles, we can gather freely, that we live in a place where, well, there are uh, uh, capable, trained pastors to open the Scriptures. And so, Lord, increase our hunger for your Word. And Lord, uh, for those who are here who are doubting uh, whether you've spoken or perhaps uh, prefer themselves as their own standard, may you, may you speak to them this word, Lord. Draw them into the light of Scripture. Show them, Lord, give them the hunger to try uh, your word, to read it, and let it, them themselves experience whether it is an authentic word from you or not. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen.